0: Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 today. Our objective is to finish the first chapter of Exodus 1 this morning. If you don't have a copy of uh, one of these, an Exodus scripture journal, I want to let you know that this is a gift that we'd love to give you today. Um, If you have your own copy of God's word that you like to take notes in, that you want to bring with you, that's great. Um, There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if you prefer to just bring the copy of the book that we'll be in for the foreseeable future, Uh, We have some of these available on this table to my left-hand side. As you leave, if you're headed down toward the kids' hallway today, there should also be some in the lobby on your way out as well. So feel free to grab one of those. Um, Our goal in giving you these is, God willing, as we preach through the whole Bible, you'll begin to build a library of your own notes, your own milestones, your own memories of how God's communicated to you, and that this will continue to be a resource to you. So as you're finding your way to really the opening page, if you're in the Scripture Journal this morning, I want to give you just a quick reminder of where we've spent the last two weeks. Because you could argue that even though we've been in this sermon series for two weeks, today is the third week, that we haven't actually gotten very far into the book of Exodus. And our objective has been to try to set the stage for what is happening in this second book of the Bible. And so uh, Exodus is a book that advances God's mission. His mission is to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, We've been reading, I won't read it again to you this morning, but we've read the three previous weeks, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, in which the Apostle Paul says that the mystery of God is revealed in Christ. What God has been up to for all of time is revealed in the person of Christ, and that that mission is that all things might find their place, things in heaven, things on earth, and be unified in Jesus. And so what that means to you and I is where we see God working in history, we can safely assume that what he is working toward is reconciliation. Reconciliation. This is a long and slow process that is communicated via covenants over time, and we don't assume that that happens because God is slow to work. We assume that that's because you and I only have so much capacity to understand what God is doing and why. We spent some time looking at that last week, but we said that uh, last week specifically that the covenants of God are the ingredients or the materials of reconciliation. This grace of God that God so willingly gives to humankind, that's what it's going to take. For you and I to ever be connected to God again in a meaningful way. It's the only way back to God is his forgiveness of us and then us carrying that forgiveness to the people around us. And then the tools that God uses to mix that grace into the world are weak human beings. People like you and I. Last week we looked at the the family tree of Abraham and the crimes that these people committed against each other, the horrible atrocities that they propagated. And all the while God did not give up on them Because he had chosen to use them, a weak and fragile people with nothing to offer, to demonstrate to a lost world how powerful, how strong he is. So today we're going to be looking for those two things. As we jump into the narrative of the story of the Exodus, we are looking for signs that God is still keeping his covenant. And I will warn you, this chapter is bleak. The things that the Pharaoh of Egypt does to God's people are horrifying. And if you read this passage and you feel horrified, that is a good sign. That means that you are somewhat in touch with your humanity. Okay, so we're actually going to have to look for signs and clues and hints, indications that God has not given up on his covenant. And we're also going to expect him to work that covenant out using weak people. So let's begin reading chapter 1, verse 8. We'll read verses 8 through 11 to start today. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, a king who did not know Joseph. And this king said to his people, behold, or look, the people of Israel are too many, and they are too mighty for us. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they might join our enemies. They might fight against us, or they might escape from the land. Therefore the Pharaoh and his people, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. Specifically, the work that these Israelite people did, this is the end of verse 11, was to build for Pharaoh storehouses, store cities, Pithom and Ramses. This is the work that God's people were put to underneath the Pharaoh. Now, roughly 400 years have passed. Between verses 7 and verse 8, there's a lot that happens that we don't get to see up close and personal. It's important for you to understand that because the Pharaoh whom welcomed Joseph and therefore Joseph's father Israel and Joseph's 11 other brothers who will become the other 11 tribes of Israel, that Pharaoh's been gone a long time. And likely, not only is he gone, but across 400 years, we're talking about another five to ten rulers of Egypt have come and gone in the time that God's people have grown from 70 people, which is how many entered into Egypt originally, to enough people for the king of this land to feel threatened by them. We don't have an exact number at this point. A little while later, around 80 years after this, we're going to find out that there's between four and 600,000 men alone in the nation of Israel, so likely somewhere between one and two million people. have have burst onto the scene in Egypt. But the pharaoh's response doesn't make a lot of sense to us if we're still thinking that Joseph is one of the good guys, right? If Joseph helped this pharaoh, he helped the pharaohs, he helped the kings of Egypt to survive a famine and to navigate a political unrest, How, how could the descendants of a person with a legacy like that suddenly become a threat, a national threat, a threat to the point that a king would say to his people, whether that's just his court of advisors or the whole nation, it's important that we oppress these people. And apparently there's no resistance to that. We don't hear of anybody speaking up in the court of the pharaoh and saying, no, we can't do that. We can't commit human rights violations like that. Everybody's either quiet or they're encouraged by this plan to oppress God's people. And so because they've grown physically strong, because the people have gotten larger, uh, far larger by, by an exponential amount than they were when they arrived, the pharaoh has to do something with them, he feels. He has to respond to them on some level. And it's important to understand that The first pharaoh that we read about at the end of Genesis who welcomes Joseph, he's not probably necessarily any more compassionate than the pharaoh who shows up here in verse 8. The difference between these two people is that good politics in Joseph's day looks like embracing Joseph, whereas good politics in the days of the Exodus looks like rejecting God's people. And so the first point that I want to make for you today that I think we can draw right out of this story is the idea that cultural assimilation of God's people is always temporary. Cultural assimilation of God's people is always temporary, In our day, good politics usually consists of three things if you want to be politically successful. First, you have to hide your stupidity, that's number one, from the public eye. If you ever watched any political drama, The West Wing, there's always that moment where the PR team sits down with the candidate and they go, what do we need to know about your past so we can hide it? Like how can we go ahead and twist the narrative and manipulate this bad thing that you did and get it out in the press initially so that nobody else has to find out about it? So that's part one. Part two is you have to be a deal maker. You have to be willing to give and receive favors, and then part three is you have to be willing to lie to people, frankly. If you wanna be really successful, you have to be willing to make promises that you can't keep, you have to be willing to figure out what people wanna hear and then feed it to them. That's very different from good politics in the days of the Exodus. Good politics in the days of the Exodus looks like keeping a large standing army, having military power, and being able to feed your people. And so when the Pharaoh of Joseph's day invites Joseph into power, It's not that he's taking compassion on this poor slave boy, it's that he sees a political opportunity to delegate a bunch of stuff he doesn't wanna mess with and retain his own power. If the Pharaoh of Joseph's day had failed to navigate a famine, then his political opponents probably would have had him assassinated, and the way that they would have spun that in the ancient Egyptian press is they would have communicated that they had to do that to appease the gods who were obviously so angry that they had allowed a famine to enter into the land. So Joseph is useful. Joseph's family, not so much, but we can deal with 69 other people if it means that we can survive a famine and and be politically successful. But in the time that it takes for Joseph to welcome his family back into the nation of Egypt, out of Canaan where they had lived previously, what Joseph does is he indicates that he still considers himself a Jewish national. Before his family was connected to him, he was just, nobody knew his background. He'd been a slave, nobody was keeping family records of the slaves that they held. They just knew he looked like a Hebrew, he spoke enough Egyptian, he could work in the court, he could make it happen. But now he invites his family back in and there's a turning point where he's communicating to the people in power. He still considers himself to be a foreign national. And so that means that he is technically, politically, a threat to the powers that be from the very beginning. A small threat and a threat that can be overlooked For the good and the benefit that it does the Pharaoh, but as the people of Israel grow, what I want you to understand is there's been a seed planted from the beginning that unrest is coming, that there's going to be some kind of conflict. It's something God knew. He communicated that to Abraham in the book of Genesis when he made the initial covenant with Abraham to give the land and to to grow the people. He said, You're going to be in slavery for 400 years. And lo and behold, God knew what he was talking about. Go figure, right? But the people of Israel, I think, seem a little bit surprised. And when you and I read this, it's easy to, to misunderstand what's happening and to think, Is there something that's not on the page? Is this just a particularly cruel man who's just looking for opportunities to oppress God's people? I don't think so. I think he's a human being and he's doing what human beings do. And when it becomes politically advantageous to him to play the religion card, he will. And when those people become a threat to him, he will do what you do with threats when you have political power. And church, this is something that I think is is universal. I think this is a principle we can apply to our own lives. That's why I think it's a point worth drawing out to you. Because in the United States cultural assimilation of Christians tends to happen about once a generation. And I'm a millennial, so I can really only speak for millennials and what's happening right now, but as my generation is coming into their 30s and 40s, what we are seeing is the Christian subculture in the United States begin to swing further toward the left end of the political spectrum, you hear more and more pastors get up and communicate the values of a more liberal government. They align themselves more so with a government that's larger. And it's, I think it comes from a good heart. It's the desire to see people taken care of. It's a desire to see charity extended to those who are in need. But it's, it's, a, it's reactionary, I think, to some degree as well. It's a response to the generation that precedes mine, the baby boomers, and how they typically swung more to the political right. Right? And what I can promise you is that regardless of what political party you associate with, you will only find the government representing your values as a Christian in as much as you remain useful to those people who are in power. And so I want to caution you. We've talked about this across the last year or so. Obviously, we've all lived through this latest political season of turmoil in our country. You felt it. I felt it. Everybody's losing. There's no clear winner right now on any level. But a temptation we will face as Christians until we die is to believe that the laws of government can usher in the kingdom of God. And they can't. They never will. What they can do is they can uphold values that God has communicated are important, and I'm not telling you that you and I should not vote or be responsible citizens of this country, but we ought not have idols in our hearts of what the government can do for us, of the problems that it can solve on a universal or even specifically a sin level in the human heart. Because when we sell ourselves out to those kinds of things, eventually we're not useful anymore. And what happens then? It's not just that we become unnecessary. We, like the people of Israel in Egypt, become a threat because there's a lot of us. I don't know if you know that or not. There are a lot of Christians in these United States. And we all carry with us the Holy Spirit of God who convicts us and leads our lives. And so when those convictions no longer line up with the goals of the government, we are a threat We are a big deal that has to be handled and our political people either have to get rid of us or they have to find a way to convince us that they have our best interests in heart. When probably neither of those is ever really true. What I want you to understand is in history, this has been something that's happened again and again. That that we see that (laughs) as we are assimilated and we kind of are lulled to sleep to some degree, that then we're taken advantage of by that same, either the political parties themselves or the government. Um, this was true in ancient Egypt, right, when Pharaoh placed Joseph into power so that he could meet his own political goals. If you fast forward a little bit further in, in history, especially the history of the Jewish people, this is true in the book of Esther. When King Artaxerxes allows Esther to speak up on behalf of her people, there's a, there's a political advantage to him in play that's somewhat short-lived. This is not the end of Jewish oppression for all time, when King Artaxerxes decides to hang the man Haman instead of uh, Esther and all of her people. Or her Naaman, I think is his name. It's true in 30 AD. This is a story that you know very well. The Roman government capitulates to the religious elite ruling class in the city of Jerusalem to kill an innocent man named Jesus of Nazareth, to crucify him on a cross because of the political sway that these people hold in this nation and the unrest that it would mean for the Roman government to not do that. This was true in the 1860s when southern slaveholders heard the Bible preached in favor of the horrors of American slavery. It was true in the 1930s. In 1933... A Protestant pastor named Otto Dibelius quoted Romans chapter 13 in front of the German parliament as an attempt to encourage the German people to support an up-and-coming German nationalist named Adolf Hitler. The Bible was used to do that. And it's true for you and I, every time a politician offers to serve our morals with their policies, or our culture assimilates a Christian in sports, right? We love when Christians cross themselves in the end zone, throw one up to Jesus, right? Thanks God for the good catch. Or we love when, when a, a Christian band has one single that gets played on MTV for two or three weeks. Or we love it when a Christian movie actually makes it into legitimate movie theaters. Or we love it when a Christian author gets a book published that more than 15 people buy. We get excited about these things because in our hearts we want so desperately to see the kingdom of God come to the earth. And that's not a bad thing, church, but that's not the way that it happens. The way that it happens is you and I carry the kingdom of God with us wherever we go. That was the big lesson as we studied the book of Ephesians in 2020, that we are the kingdom of God. And so where God communicates through us, where God inspires us, where God changes our lives, this is the way that the boundaries of the kingdom of God spread. It's not through political parties, and it won't happen through government. And so we need to be wary. We need to be careful about the stock that we put in what governments can and cannot do for us. If we believe that we are witnessing a permanent change in culture every time we see a Christian elevated for 15 minutes of fame, then we'll be tempted to give all of our hope over to politics or government. And then what we'll do is, and you've seen people do this, we'll stay married to some moment in the past that we believe was this politically ideal moment for us. If only things could go back to the way that they were, the good old days, and we'll totally lose our effectiveness in our culture. Exodus is teaching you and I that God's people are always aliens where they live, that we are ourselves foreign nationals and that our primary citizenship is in God's kingdom. To government and to politicians, Christians are a means to an end and cultural assimilation of God's people is always temporary. So as that change happens and this new pharaoh finds that being politically savvy looks like oppressing God's people, things go from bad to worse. Let's keep reading in verse 12. But the more that God's people were oppressed, the more that they multiplied. Now, very interesting. If you look just a couple lines up in your scripture journal, this is, this is Pharaoh's total fear, right? He says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. He does not want multiplication. It's the very thing that causes him not to sleep at night. Yet in verse 12, the harder the Pharaoh pushes down on God's people, the more that they grow and do the very thing he's scared of. The more that they also spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now back in verse 9, I highlighted for you the idea that the Pharaoh initially consulted his people. That's what your Bible tells you. We don't know if this is a court of advisors or if it's just the city that he lives in, the capital city, or if it's the whole nation. But it's interesting, isn't it, that initially he wants to be quote-unquote shrewd. Like he doesn't, he, he's, the, he's the modern CEO. He's the modern king and ruler. He doesn't want the New York Times expose that's gonna come out a couple of months from now about how badly he's been treating the Israelite people. He wants to do this thing in a politically correct way. But after trying that, something now has changed. If we look in our Bibles really closely, look at verse 10 again and see, see a, a, a shift here, okay? He says, I wanna deal shrewdly with them lest they do these things. Now if you'll skip down to verse 12, The Egyptians now are in dread of the people of Israel. So the nation has shifted. Probably this is a product of the way that their pharaoh is leading them. They've seen oppression be something that seems to work, and so they like it and they're cheering for it, but it isn't satisfying. It's not enough for them, and so now the nation is behind the idea that we take this oppression to the next level. And so when the pharaoh moves from simply giving the people hard work and low wages and not taking care of them to enslaving them, no one speaks up. He has the full support of a nation behind him to do this. And this is when this oppression becomes systemic and potentially permanent. If there's not a God to intercede, this is something that's going to continue for untold generations. So when we think about the perspective of the Pharaoh, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Because he's obviously the bad guy, right, in this book. We understand... Moses is going to go to him. You've seen the movie. You've at least probably seen the Veggie Tales. Let my people go. He says no. Let my people go. He says no. They do this 10 times back and forth. And then finally, God raises the stakes enough that the Pharaoh lets his people go. He does the right thing, and then he's drowned in the ocean. So we know he's the bad guy. But at this point in the story, I believe he's behaving like any human being in power would behave. I think that the things that he wants to defend and protect and sustain for his people, though the way that he does them is horrible, and I'm not endorsing that at all or supporting it, his his ideas, his motivations as a person who doesn't know God, they're relatively good motivations. Think about the things that he wants to do. God is trying to grow the Israelite nation, but Pharaoh's threatened by that because he wants to protect his own nation. right? He thinks that Egypt is the, the country of of power in the, in the world. And Egypt are the, the Egyptians are the people who need to be supported and propagated and fostered and cared for. And if that can happen on the backs of the Israelites, then they can be part of the story, but it's not gonna be their story, it's gonna be the story of the people of Israel. God intends to move his people to Canaan. In verse 10, Pharaoh said that one of his fears is that the Israelites leave Egypt. So he's directly opposed to what God wants in that sense because he sees how all these slaved people could be useful to him and his political prowess. God wants... His people to love and serve him, but the Pharaoh demands instead that he be treated as deity and sovereign in their midst. And so this motivates the Pharaoh because what he wants is to keep his people safe. Right? He wants to guard them against an internal revolution or an external assault. Not a bad thing to want. He wants control over his people. He believes the consequences of foreign nationals having free reign in his empire will be devastating to him and his people. And so control is the way that he tries to maintain the safety that he's seeking. And he wants his own people to prosper. This is his motivation for enslaving the Israelite people and not just killing them all. They are a strong people, the Bible tells us. They're physically robust. They're able to get a lot done. They're hard workers. And I think that the Pharaoh sees a path to greatness built on the broken backs of the Israelite people. So objectively, desiring safety, wanting to be able to functionally rule, wanting the nation to prosper. These are not bad things. If that was the platform of a presidential candidate in our nation, we would all feel like that's pretty good, right? To keep our country safe, to make sure that we prosper economically, to be sure that that person has the executive ability to actually put laws and policies into place that uphold those two ideas. But the pharaoh becomes an oppressor of God's people when those desires become demands, When he demands that the Israelite people subvert their humanity and unquestionably obey and work for his good without any share in that prosperity, Pharaoh becomes an abuser, a textbook abuser. And the way that he treats God's people is a roadmap for the heart and the mind of a person who abuses other people in life. I mean, this is true today for you. Um, Right now, your elders are reading a book about understanding and addressing abuse And it has this to say, I have a quote for you that we're gonna read about the heart of an oppressor. Darby Strickland wrote the book and she says this. She says, oppressors demand that others love and serve them. Ordinary entitlement becomes pernicious or subtly harmful when it leads a person to punish those who stand in the way of their demands. And then she gives us three indicators, three windfalls of a toxic entitled person. First, they deflect all blame, they're never wrong. Second, they admit no wrongdoing. And third, they rationalize punishing behaviors as being an appropriate response to the people around them. And so this is our second point this morning, that oppression happens when desires become demands. This is the root of what's happening in the heart of the Pharaoh. And this is the primary difference between a godly leader and a leader who's decided that they will do whatever they want at whatever cost. And those kinds of leaders, church, do exist in churches, let me tell you. So this is something you need to be very wise about. As God leads and moves your family through the years and you have to go and find another church, testing the waters of how leadership functions in that congregation, who has the power and how they wield that power, those are very good questions to ask early on in your engagement with a new congregation. Because unfortunately, humans are willing to do things really poorly in Jesus' name. They are. It doesn't bother us that badly. As long as we think we're getting the objective that God has laid in front of us, we'll go faster than we're supposed to, we'll shortcut God's processes, we'll cut the legs out from underneath people that we just don't like, and we'll do it all in the advancement of what we think the church is supposed to look like. So yeah, it's easy to demonize the Pharaoh, but you and I have to be cautious that when we read the Old Testament stories, we don't automatically associate with the heroes. Because we're human beings. We're people. And probably, just like you and I would have consumed whatever fruit was hanging in the Garden of Eden that God said not to eat, in a similar position of power to Pharaoh, far from God, and seeing this immense threat growing in our nation, we probably would have done very similar things to what he did. So we have to be very, very careful that when we think about those windfalls, those indicators of what it looks like to be an oppressor and an abuser, that we are willing to self-evaluate as well, that we don't automatically assume our own innocence. When you look at that list of things, you may not just see indicators of an ancient Egyptian king. You may see indicators of your own spouse, church. You may see indicators of your parents and the relationship that they've had with you in your life. You may actually be able to self-evaluate and see indicators of your own self. I'll just confess to you, for the first three years of my marriage, in large part because of my personality and the environment that I came from, I was an oppressive personality in my home. And I was 100% blind to that. I had no idea. My wife knew, unfortunately. She was very familiar with those tendencies in me. But it has taken years of counseling and prayer and confession and self-evaluation to learn to be different from that. And the reason that I am saying that to you is because if you are an oppressive personality or you live with someone who is an abuser, you have to understand that in this church that is something that we talk about. We don't hide that from each other. That doesn't get better because we bury it. It grows when we bury it. And I'm telling you that your elders are in the process of being equipped right now to navigate these conversations with you because we care about you. Because we want to help and we don't want to see these things get buried and grow and then bear fruit not only in our lives but the lives of our children and our grandchildren for generations to come. We believe that the gospel is strong enough to prune those branches before they get big and to change that narrative in our homes and our lives. Some of us, probably most of us, have more in common with the people of Egypt at this point in the story than we do the people of Israel. We have experienced, haven't we, before, being threatened enough by something that we're willing to abandon our humanity, just temporarily, we think. We'll just lay down these principles of mercy and forgiveness that we hear about at church all the time and we'll do what's effective instead. We'll handle the problem. We'll justify violence, even if it's only violence in our language. And it's not Christ-like. It doesn't belong here we're all human beings, so we need to admit to ourselves, to each other, that we have the potential to be oppressive personalities. What we will do about that will demonstrate to us and to our community how far the gospel has actually reached in our lives. Simply being an oppressor and identifying that, I mean, if you've been through any recovery program or any STEPS program, step number one is admitting you have a problem. There's 11 more that come after that before that problem is gone. But we have to start there, don't we? We have to be able to admit that we may have a tendency to become oppressive, even in Jesus' name. So what will we do? Will we speak up about that? Will we ask for forgiveness? Will we admit that we're wrong? Will we, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, be made brand new by Jesus? Because we can be. That's the hope that Christ offers you and I, is the opportunity to be not just better, but new. That's what the gospel does, because Jesus can heal the heart of the abuser. And he can also heal the wounds of abuse itself. He's the only way. No amount of secular therapy, no amount of books that you may read, nothing other than Christ's blood on the cross in your place can truly give you a new and right heart. And when it comes to oppression and it comes to abuse, these are deep-rooted issues. I'm not talking about you flew off the handle one time with your spouse three years ago. I'm talking about a pattern, like we read about, of pernicious entitlement. I will get what I want from this family. You will do what I say. I do know better than you. This is the only way forward. Jesus can heal that. And if he can't, this is a waste of your time. If he can't heal that, if he can't reach the heart of a person who wants to take advantage of other people, then none of this matters. Because if Jesus can't reach the deepest, darkest, most deeply rooted sins that we have, then what is he? He's just a cheaper therapist than the one that we can pay per hour. All he can do is offer us self-help techniques and opportunities to try harder, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet foresaw that Jesus would do these things. He says this beginning in verse five, that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He died for how wrong we are. He was crushed for our iniquities. Where we have rebelled against God, Jesus was pulverized for those things. And upon him was placed all the chastisement. You can read that as wrath, as anger from God, and that that has brought us peace. It is with the wounds of Jesus that we are healed. What an irony that a person who has spent their life wounding other people would be healed by the wounds of an innocent person. We have gone astray like sheep. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus that iniquity, that selfishness, that rebelliousness. Jesus was oppressed, he was afflicted himself, yet he did not open his mouth to defend himself like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So that's the Jesus who's here for you, if this is your reality. And it's the same Jesus who is present for God's people in the book of Exodus, The Son of God willingly taking on all the damage that you have experienced and will ever do for you so that you don't have to pay for that. So what we have to decide is whether we're going to believe that we can be free by that sacrifice or not. We have to ask ourselves, will we boldly confess our reality if that reality is having been victimized or having been an abuser? Will we do that understanding that Jesus is already in heaven interceding for us, advocating for us even while we find ourselves trapped on earth by sin and oppression? Or will we, like the Pharaoh of Exodus, turn our backs and walk away? Will we harden our hearts believing that our own savvy, our own intelligence, our own ability is sufficient to fix what's wrong with us? Because that will be Pharaoh's response 11 times in this book, is he will be confronted with God, an opportunity to obey God and do what God has said, though it is painful, and instead he'll say, no, I'm good, I know what I'm doing doesn't matter what it costs me, it's worth it to preserve my own identity. My self-idolatry is valuable enough to me that I will reject my opportunity to repent. I hope that's not true for us. I hope that where we see oppression happening, when desires become demands, we will call on Christ. We will confess him and we'll believe that he can heal and fix whatever is wrong with us, despite how incredibly scary it will be to even admit that we need him to do that. So to come back to the narrative church, what hope do the people of Israel have, right? They've been basically tricked by the political system they lived underneath. They're now enemies, the largest threat to the country that in a way they helped save 400 years ago. And now the man who's in power has decided he's willing to basically go to any length to make sure that they never escape from him and that they are oppressed enough that they can't rebel. Well, how could things get any worse? Let's find out. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, who are the women responsible for assisting with the births of Hebrew babies, one of whom was named Shafra and the other Puah, he said, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son that they're giving birth to, then you will kill that son. But if it is a daughter, then she will live. Why would he do that? Why does he care about men versus women? Well, boys grow up to be soldiers in this era, in this day. And so he wants things to look like, like he wants plausible deniability basically here. If he tells them to kill all the babies, then it's clear what's happening. But if only the boys die, maybe he can deny that there was ever really a plan and it was just an accident. So that's what he wants them to do. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but instead they let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. That was a good lie. Here's your first example in the Bible of a good lie to a corrupt person to preserve what God values, okay? So this is cool. God dealt well with them. The people multiplied Same fear, same fear that Pharaoh's had. He's doing everything he knows to do to keep this from happening, and it just keeps happening because God is continuing to preserve his covenants. We're seeing him do it through a weak people, a people who've been enslaved. There's no weaker position to be in than to have lost all the freedoms that you've ever had. Yet God is still propagating his covenant and growing these people like he promised Abraham. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let, excuse me, every daughter live. So here we see Pharaoh's abuse, his oppression evolve into murder, the outright taking of human life. He's not just gonna push these people down. He's not just gonna discourage their growth. He's gonna take personal responsibility for them not growing to the point that they can overthrow his government. And this is the pattern of every abusive heart. Abuse always begins with intent. It begins with a a poor understanding of self. It begins with a strong sense of entitlement that's either reactive to having been abused itself or was built into that mind simply by being a sinner or by being raised by parents who just thought that this person was God's gift to the earth. But that mindset turns into words usually first and those words turn into actions against people that are close and then eventually if that's not productive enough that that person finds themselves stepping all the way across the line into something that's criminal. And this is where we see the Pharaoh. He tries to be subtle about it first, right? He asks the Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work for him. But I think it's so interesting how they respond to him, right? I mean, there's at least two women in this nation who have not lost sight of the God of Israel. It's been 400 years since they were moved from Canaan into God's country. God has not spoken via a prophet in that time. They're still clinging to this last covenant that God gave to Abraham about the midway point of the book of Genesis. And they remember that God values the life of people. They probably remember that when God gave Noah his covenant way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis, that God communicated that there would be a price on taking human life. That the value of human life was high enough that God would make sure that blood answered blood where it was spilled. And so they don't want that. They believe in God, they revere God, and they understand that there ain't no king of any country that's gonna be a big enough deal to cause them to compromise their standing before the God of the universe, which is a very healthy and very good attitude for any believer to have any country in the world at any time, for you to say, no, I'm not gonna compromise myself for what you want. I serve a God who's real and alive, and he'll preserve me. What I think is fascinating is that this Pharaoh must be so removed from the ins and outs of daily life that this lie is effective on him, Has he never, ever seen a person have a baby in his life? Like, there's a couple that I know very well who right now have just been waiting and waiting and waiting on their baby to come for weeks and weeks and weeks and praying and eating spicy food and taking long walks and doing jumping jacks and everything that she can do to get this baby to come. It is not possible that every single woman in a nation of several hundred thousand people is having their baby too fast. Yet the Pharaoh goes... Man, bummer. I really thought that was going to be a good plan. I guess that, hmm, okay, we'll have to try it a different way. What I also think is worth pointing out here, and we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to just make this point to you quickly, is that in order for God giving the midwives families to be a good thing, there must be an end to this infanticide coming. And that's a subtlety that you might not pick up on. You may want to take a note of that in your scripture journal. In order for the writer of Exodus to communicate that being given a family is a blessing and not a curse, Means that something is going to change soon. Something about having a family and having children is going to become good again. Because if the Pharaoh is killing all the babies, having a baby is not a good thing. It is a curse of an experience to know that you're going to carry this child for nine months and then it's going to be thrown in the river to drown and be eaten by alligators. It's horrifying. So something is coming. Something is changing. There's hope on the way in that Shifra and Puah are excited. They're rejoicing to receive families in response to their faithfulness. At the very end of chapter 1, Pharaoh has moved from oppressing God's people with unfair work to then outright enslaving them to then trying to subtly kill off the male babies to prevent the Israelites from fielding a revolutionary army, and none of it has worked. And at each turn, our narrator, Moses, has communicated to us that the people prospered under that oppression, that they grew exponentially as they were exploited, and why? Why is that the case? Your final point today, because the God of Israel keeps his promises. That's why. Nothing and no one can stop him. There are moments in this book, church, as I've just poured over these verses and read that I begin to get chills. You get the prickles on the back of your neck like something big is about to happen. And there is incredible irony in the most powerful man in the known world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, making a policy that if people won't do his dirty work for him, at least the laws of nature will, right? At least if we throw the babies in the river, there's no way that by throwing male babies in the river, one of them could wind up being adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter and then grow up in his own household, right? There's no way that's possible. Well, that's what's gonna happen in chapter two. The very curse that the Pharaoh attempts to lay over God's people as a final nail in the coffin to handle them once and for all will be the vehicle by which God's deliverance comes. And this is the story of Jesus too. That by becoming a curse and by embodying the most massive penalty that anybody's ever faced in their life that he would then deliver us, that that would be the vehicle by embodying and taking on that curse, that would be the vehicle of new life because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises to people who find themselves oppressed and rejected and abandoned by their government. He keeps his promises. God keeps his promises to people who find themselves stuck in relationships that are built around an oppressor, an abuser's whims. God keeps his promises to those people. God keeps his promises to the church just as he keeps his promises to the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus because God sets his people free. He delivers us. He heals our past and he creates a living future for us. And through Jesus, he unites all things in him and where we see him overcoming and battling back against this Pharaoh, we see God working to reunify himself with his people. No person can get in the way of that process. No nation, no political policy, no amount of oppression or abuse, mistreatment, genocide, infanticide, none of it can get in the way of God's plan. And so for you and I as modern Christians where we see our world spinning in a direction that we would never have wanted it to go, where we see darkness and oppression and abuse apparently run rampant both among God's people and in the world as a whole, we cannot lose sight of God keeping his promises When God changed Jacob, the sneak, he changed his name to Israel. The name Israel means God strives. God is working. And so when we talk about the God of Israel keeping his promises, what we are saying in a way is the God who is working always works. He doesn't stop. He doesn't take a break. He is engaged. And that is true for you and I today as well. And so I don't know what burdens you. I don't know what you're carrying on your shoulders right now or in your heart or in the pit of your stomach that keeps you from sleeping, but I want you to understand that God is working in the midst of your problems to reconcile. That the spirit of God may not protect you from all of the pain in your life, but he also won't abandon you to face it by yourself. And that Jesus, the same Jesus who was willing to take on all of the sin, all of the abuse and oppression you will ever deal or experience is still alive and that gospel is still good news for you and it's still good news for the people around you. And it doesn't matter how close any of us feel that we're getting to some kind of global apocalypse, the truth of Scripture today is good enough to share, and it's good enough to believe, and it's good enough to pray, and it's good enough to build our lives on. So whether you find yourself on the Egyptian side of history or the Israelite side of history, God keeps his promises, and he will not abandon you. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. That's why we're here. I pray, God, that you would, uh, that you would draw near to us and experience. We know from Scripture that you are never far from us. We understand, God, that our lives are not ours anymore, that we who claim Christ have been made new. So much of the time we experience something else, we, we, we sense distance from you, we sense the weight of our own sin, we sense our guilt, we sense our shame, and those things become defining for us, God. We don't want that to be true, but we're confessing that it is to you, and that we're going to need your help. We need you to heal us from that. And so, Father, as we attempt to navigate our lives, as, as we attempt to navigate an incredibly charged political climate in our country... Differences of political perspective have severed familial ties, have damaged people's livelihood, have challenged deeply seated peaceful relationships, God, have broken them in half. And we want to be people who can reconcile. We want to be people who have a bigger vision for life and a bigger vision for our city and our neighbors than whether or not they can vote the right way every four years. We want to be people who put our full faith and trust in you, that you are working. And so I pray that you'd show us that. I think that's the remedy to our self-idolatry. God, I believe that that's the solution to where we get caught up in our own feelings and our own sin and the the weight that we carry is we stop looking at you and we start focusing on fixing ourselves. And so I pray, God, that it would be true in our lives that it is all about Jesus, that everything we do is about you, it's for you. And that as we follow you, wherever you lead us, we would find freedom. We love you, Father. We trust you to do what we ask. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.